be in your presence, to have a place to come and, and worship and glorify your name. We pray, Lord, that you would bless our time together as we read and study your word. And as my brother Mike so appropriately prayed, Lord, that you would speak to each and every heart, and that you would speak through me, Lord, and glorify yourself. And uh, we pray this now in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 9. We are going to look at uh, the first few verses here in this chapter. And I, I almost wanted to start my Christmas series with this chapter, as you'll see. But I was like, is it too early to start talking about Christmas? <laughs> you know, the Hallmark Channel starts next week with Christmas. And I, I have my Christmas music queued, ready to go. You know, ready with the Barry Manilow Happy Holidays song. I'm just kidding. No, I'm, I'm not kidding. <laughs> but anyway, so this, we're going to look at a text. And as you'll see, it's a very famous text used around Christmas time. And we're going to really just develop the context of it and see how it applies to ancient Israel and by extension to us today. And so the title of this morning's message is The Assurance of Hope. When you think of the word hope, what do you usually think of? It's usually a feeling or an expression of, I, I, I wish this happens, or I desire that something happens, or I, I uh, dream that this will happen. You know, for example, you may say, I, I hope I get a pay increase at my next job, you know, review at, job, at, at work. Or you hope, if you're still in school, that you get good grades, right? You may hope that your team wins the game today. That's a hope. It's a big hope, depending on who you're rooting for. Uh, you may hope that you feel better tomorrow, right? Some of us are sick and in pain and suffering, and we're, there's this hope that tomorrow I may feel better. You may hope that this sermon, is, this sermon isn't very long. That may be a hope. That would be an ill-advised hope, but it's a hope nonetheless. You've also heard hope used like, I hope in the Lord. But is that the same hope when you say, I hope I feel better tomorrow? Is your hope in the Lord a, a dream, a wish, something you desire, or is it more of like, I trust? It's something that's assured. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1.1 says this, that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. So you get a sense that hope means something different in that sense. It's not he's our wish, our desire, you know, or our expectation that he happens or it happens. And so this morning I want to talk about that hope. And again, the title of this message this morning is The Assurance of Hope. As in the sense that it's definitely going to happen. For example, every one of us knows, going back to Christmas, that Christmas is coming. You could hope that it wouldn't come. You could hope that it would, could be put off or come sooner. But there is definitely a specific date that it is coming. It's an assurance that it is happening unless the Lord returns. And then we have something so much greater than a feeling of Christmas. So go to our text now just to give you a little background. Over the past few weeks, we've been studying chapters 7 and 8, where Isaiah the prophet has been talking about the Assyrian Empire and how they are going to come down and sweep through the northern kingdom of Israel. And eventually they are going to touch 
down to the southern kingdom of Judah. And the outlook, as you've been, if you've been here over the past few weeks, has been bleak. All hope by God's people is lost. Uh, it's all gone. The situation is desperate. So much so that we studied last week that they've abandoned the counsel of God and sought after occultic advice because they're not hearing from the Lord the way that they want to. They're not getting the answers that they want, so they go somewhere else. Again, all hope has been lost. And this week, in this chapter, Isaiah now assures the nation of Israel, both northern and southern tribes, of the hope that is to come. And it's an assured hope. And that, so that brings us to the text, and let's look at this message now. We'll read through the first seven verses and then come back and talk about it. So this is what the prophet Isaiah writes. He says, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated with contempt, excuse me, in earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by way of the sea and on the other side of the Jordan, <coughs> Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, and you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of a harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, a cloak rolled in blood will be for a burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and or excuse me, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So you can see, as I mentioned, why I was talking about Christmas. The very end there is a verse that's on greeting cards and sung about at Christmas time. But again, in the context of what's going on with the nation of Israel, the prophet Isaiah is offering them hope for the future, the hope to come. So let's look at that now, going back to the very beginning. The, the prophet Isaiah, again, in verses seven, or chapter 7 through 8, has been talking about the impending judgment of God, where God will hide his face and allow foreign armies to come and invade Israel because they have been unfaithful to the Lord their God. And there's going to be a time of judgment. And now he's saying, but there's going to be a time of hope. And again, there's assurance of hope. It's not like, well, we hope so. It's definite. And he says, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. So again, he's talking about Israel in general. They are in gloom. They're in anguish. Israel suffering fear and eventually will suffer captivity, both Israel and the southern kingdom, Judah. 
again for their sin. So he's saying there's going to be no more of that. There's going to come a time in the future, he's saying, when there's going to be no more gloom and no more anguish. And he says in earlier times he treated the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali with contempt. There's going to be no more contempt by the Lord where he's going to forsake his people. He's going to reappear to them in some way, which we'll talk about in a few moments. There will be an end to the Lord's Lord's contempt. And if you notice, he uses two tribes of the northern kingdom. Why does he do that? Well, I believe, and some commentators do as well, is because Israel was the first to turn their backs on the Lord. And here the gracious and glorious mercy of our Lord is reminding even the northern kingdom that there's a remnant within them that he will bring salvation to. So the northern kingdom is the first to leave, but they're going to be, in a sense, the first to experience salvation when they return to the Lord. And I like that, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a few moments. So that's the reference there. Moving on now to verse 2. How will this come about? How will the Lord take away the gloom and the anguish and the contempt that the land has experienced and the people? Look at verse 2. He says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, a light will shine on them. So the darkness that is created by the Lord turning his face from the nation will come back. He will turn his face on them once again or appear to them again in the future. That's the light that will shine upon them. And his appearance, according to verse 3, will cause increase in the nation. One of the ways the Old Testament constantly speaks of evidence of God's blessing is the multiplication of the family, the multiplication of the land, just being prosperous and fruitful. And so that's what the prophet is saying here is that the nation will multiply. You shall end your gladness shall be increased. When the Lord appears, the people will be glad once again. Now imagine again, as we will just think, as we've been talking, if the Lord hides his face from the nation, they've lost hope. It's when the Lord reappears to them that gladness comes back. So the appearance of God to his people not only multiplies, you know, their prosperity, but also multiplies their happiness, their gladness. The Lord is with them. He's blessing them. And so that's what the prophet is describing here. No more is there going to be gloom and darkness and contentment. But when the Lord appears to his people again, he's going to bless their nation. He's going to bless their their crops. This is what he's talking about here. So much so, verse 3 says, They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of the harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil again. The picture is that there's an abundance of blessings on the people and they're glad before it. And they're glad that they're splitting up the the spoils and they have an overabundance of it again. Why? Because God has appeared to them. Continuing on in verse four, doesn't stop there. He says for you, if you notice the you is he's talking about the light that's going to come. And we'll talk about who that is or in a few moments. For you shall break the yoke of their burden, verse 4, and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. The appearance of the Lord is going to free them from oppression. When the Lord comes, they're going to be freed from all oppression. 
just one benefit of the Lord appearing. And not only that, verse five, verse five tells us that his appearance will bring about peace. The yoke of Israel's burden will be broken. Look at verse five. Every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and a cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. All those things that are about war will be taken away and burned for fire. Why? Because it will be a time of peace when the Lord appears. His appearance will free his people from oppression and bring about peace. So this is what Isaiah is telling to the nation before they're actually taken into captivity. He's giving them, hey, he's already said we're going to suffer for a, a, but a moment, maybe even a few years. As you know, it's going to be quite some time. But in some time in the future, the Lord is going to reappear and bless us as a people. And the question always is, right, we sing about stuff like this. We always want to know when. When is that going to happen? We know it's going to happen. We hope and trust that it's happening. And the question is always when, right? We want to know when because we want it, it now. Well, look at what Isaiah says in verse 6. <clears throat> verse 6 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. So when will this happen? Well, he doesn't give us a definite time, does he? He tells you the events that are going to happen that will bring this about. He says, when the child is born to Israel, when a son is given to them. And this son that is given to them, the prophet describes, is a son who will assume the role of governing his people. The nation of Israel has always wanted a king to rule and reign over them. And as you go through the Old Testament, uh, God eventually gave them the king that they wanted because they wanted to be like the rest of the nations who have kings that fight for them. And as you study the Old Testament, you see that all the kings that they were given fallen short in some way, in some desperately short. And for the northern tribes of Israel, they failed each and every one of them. The southern kingdom had some good kings. But there is coming a king here described that is going to be greater than them all. And he is going to govern his people. And his rule will be with perfect wisdom. This is what he's this is what is meant by the titles given to this coming son of Israel. And he's going to be a wonderful counselor. He's going to be mighty God, not a mighty God. He's going to be mighty God. So the implication is he's going to be something other than a human king that we're used to. And he's going to be not only that, he's going to be eternal father. He's going to sacrifice for his children as a father would. And he's going to bring about peace, right? He's the prince of peace, it says. And verse 7 says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. So this coming king, this coming son of Israel, will bring about peace. It will be ever-increasing. His kingdom will be ever-increasing with justice and righteousness, and we're told that it will never end. Again, verse 7 says, On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on 
forevermore. So the picture is of somebody who's going to rule over his people with all these attributes and the kingdom will never end. Again, Israel is not told here when this will happen, but they are told at the end of verse 7, look at the last verse, that it is going to happen, that it is assuredly going to happen. Look at verse 7, the very end. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. They're not told when. They're just told that it's going to happen and that they can trust the Lord. Over and over again, they're told to trust the Lord, to hope in the Lord, because the Lord is going to make it happen. So we thankfully live on the other side of this time, and we have the fortune of hindsight. And I hope you can tell already, when did this happen? Or some may say it hasn't even happened yet. Well, let's look at the scriptures, because I believe that this has happened in one sense, And yet, it is still going to happen in a fuller sense. So just follow me here. So the end, the end, or this prophecy began to take place when? When there was a son given to the nation of Israel. And who is that son? Well, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. Luke chapter 1, verse 30, this is when the angel appeared to Mary. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him, what? The throne of his father David And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Some of these words here are what the prophet Isaiah said to his people, right? This son who is to be given to the nation of Israel to bring about the fulfillment of this prophecy is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He began to... to, to, uh, Begin the kingdom of God and he will come again, as we'll see, to consummate it in a fuller sense. So the end began at the coming of Jesus. He is the son given to the nation Israel. Let me show you one more verse here. Turn back to the gospel of Matthew and look at chapter four, verse 12. Just in case you're thinking, well, I don't know if that prophecy really refers to that verse. This one definitely does. There's no doubt. Matthew uh, 4, verse 14. <coughs> Actually, back up, verse 12, sorry. Now when Jesus heard that John had begun had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea. Look at this, in the region of where? Zebulon and Naphtali. Remember those two names were used by the prophet Isaiah, which we just read in chapter 9. And the northern kingdom on the side, on the uh, west side of Galilee. And look at what he says. This, verse 14, this isn't just the pastor speaking. This is the 
the Gospel of Matthew. This was to fulfill what was to fulfill Jesus being in Zebulon and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah, who we just read. The land of Zebulon. Here he quotes Isaiah. The land of Zebulon. The land of Naphtali. By way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death. Upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The prophecy that we read in Isaiah chapter nine, Matthew is saying is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus right here in Matthew chapter four, that Jesus is the son who is inaugurating the kingdom of God to fulfill the prophecy that Isaiah spoke about to his people. Do you see that? Does that make sense? It's Jesus is the king that is coming to establish all that the prophet Isaiah said. He is the blessed hope, the assurance that we hope in. So what does that mean? That means the kingdom of God is now here with us in Christ Jesus. The things prophesied by Isaiah have already began to take place. Let's look at this one by one here. First. Jesus has come as the light of the world. Remember in the prophecy and in Matthew chapter 4, there was this light that was coming out of northern Israel. Isn't Jesus, aren't we told that Jesus is the light? Turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 1. Real quick here. John chapter 1 verse 9. Verse 9. There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, the light that Isaiah prophesied, and Matthew said Isaiah prophesied, is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the light that is coming to shed light on all darkness, to take away that gloom and anguish of the land. Jesus came and began to do that when he arrived here on this earth. He fulfilled that prophecy in one sense. Not only that, Jesus increases our gladness, as the prophet said. We are already experienced the joy of the Lord, do you not? All those who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in a sense begin to experience gladness and joy. That's happening over and over again. Every time somebody confesses the Lord Jesus Christ, follows the Lord Jesus Christ, their gladness is increased and they experience the joy of the Lord. Again, Jesus says this has already been happening. Not only that. Jesus has come to free us from oppression. We have already been freed from oppression in one sense, haven't we? And Jesus has come to give us peace. We already have peace with God. Let me show you one more verse in Luke uh, chapter 4 where Jesus talks specifically about these two things, about being freed from oppression and being at peace. Look at um, Luke chapter 4. Verse, let's start in verse 16. 
So this is speaking of Jesus' ministry when he would go into the, to the uh, synagogue. Uh, and this is what he did this one time. And it says, he came uh, to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So somebody in the synagogue gave Jesus the scroll of Isaiah. And it says that Jesus opened the book and found the place where it was written. And here's a direct quote from the prophet Isaiah that Jesus reads. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he pointed me to proclaim the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So Isaiah read from the prophet, I mean, Jesus read from the prophet Isaiah, saying that these things were going to happen because the spirit of the Lord was on somebody. And who was that somebody? Look at verse 20. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And, be, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture that he just read has been fulfilled in your hearing. You get the sense of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that prophecy is about me and I'm going to do that now. What is he going to do? He's going to preach the gospel to the poor. He's going to proclaim release to the captives, recover the sight of the blind, and he's going to set free all those who are oppressed. Again, that's what the Messiah was called to do in the book of Isaiah chapter 9. And Jesus says that's what he's going to do. And if you know the Gospels, that is exactly what the Lord does. He recovers the sight of the blind. He uh, frees those who are oppressed. And if you think about it in your own life, has he not done that to some of us? He's freed us from the oppression of sin, the slavery of sin. Some of us he's freed from other things other activities that we were involved in, other addictions, other relationships, and now you are at peace with God. So in one sense, these things have already happened, and they will continue to happen every time somebody puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, Jesus now sits on the throne. Remember the verse in Luke one thirty-two. That prophecy that was told to Mary that you're going to have a son and he's going to be given the throne of David. Jesus is already sitting on the throne of David, ruling the hearts of men and women that are his children. And the kingdom of God will continue to expand, just as Isaiah said. Think of this. Every time somebody believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, repents of their sins and follows him, the kingdom of God is growing. And it has been growing ever since Jesus came. So Jesus' kingdom continues to expand. The kingdom of God is here now in the hearts of the men and women who are his children, who are the citizens of the kingdom of God. And that's not it. It's not over. We still have the blessed hope that the kingdom of God is coming, don't we? In a more fuller sense. So don't think, well, this is it. This is the kingdom of God. In one sense, yes, the kingdom of God is now, but it also is not yet. It is coming in a more fuller sense. Jesus will come again, and all these things that I've just talked about will be permanent, cemented for good forever, never to be taken away. Let's see, how th- let's see where 
we can see that at in a few pl- in just a number of places. Uh, turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter twenty one and twenty two. We're going to flip through there and see how all these things are fulfilled in a much greater sense. So, the appearing of Christ the second time will number one. We will have the permanent light of the Lord. Remember, Isaiah was saying the light will come out of, you know, up in the north and will come down. And Jesus says he's the light. And now look at what Revelation 21, verse 22 through 30 or 24 says. It says in the 12 gates. There were 12 uh, pearls and each one of the gates was a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the almighty and the Lord of its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God has illuminated it and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by what its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So that's the final culmination where this light that Isaiah is talking about that is coming where Jesus says, I am the light now. In a more fuller sense, in a permanent sense, for all eternity will be established. He is the light, the permanent light of the Lord. And not only that, we will have a he will permanently establish gladness. Right. We experience gladness when, you know, something good happens or we have a great feeling, especially at Christmas time. I'm going to harp on Christmas from this point on, as you could tell. We get this, you know, nice, warm, fuzzy feeling or whatever you may get. Just imagine that. Just imagine Christmas on steroids without all the commercialism. Eternal gladness. Can you imagine just always being glad and joyful? We'll all be like Tigger forever. You're like, oh, no. (laughs) We can't deal with Tiggers. Uh, Revelation 22, look at verses um, 1 and 2. It says, then he showed me a river of the water of life. Clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the lamb in the middle of its street on the other side of the river was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is permanent gladness, first of all, in the land, right? The picture is that the land is is constantly bearing fruit. There's no more famine. There's no more, uh, you know, Just famine is not there anymore. So the land's always producing. It's like opening the refrigerator and it's always full is the picture. Doesn't that bring gladness to some of you right now that are real hungry? It's like it's always that's what he's saying right there. The picture is that it's just the the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, just bearing fruit, yielding the fruit every month, all the time. Permanent gladness. And. Jesus will permanently free us from oppression, right? Because maybe even as I said that earlier, that Jesus frees us from oppression. Sometimes we still feel oppressed. Sometimes we still suffer. But there's going to be a permanent release from all oppression. Look at Revelation 22, verse 3. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. The curse that we now experience from sin will be eradicated and there will no longer be any of that 
Just like early in Revelation 20 where it says there will be no more suffering, no more pain. I mean, 21, no more pain, no more suffering for the former things have passed. There will, we will be permanently free of oppression. So those of you that are suffering at this moment, you know that you have the assurance of hope that one day you will no longer feel that way. Not only that, Jesus will permanently establish peace. Going back to Revelation 21, look at verses 24 through 27 where it depicts the peacefulness of the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns. Starting in verse 24, yeah. It says, Then the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there. And its gates will never be closed. If the gates are never closed and they're always open, there's no fear of foreign invaders. That's the picture he's given you. It's like you can leave your front doors open and unlocked because there's nothing to fear. And verse 26 says, And they will bring their glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean and no one who practices an abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is permanent peace. There's no longer any evil around. There's no longer anything to fear ever, ever again. Permanent peace will be for those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So not only will we have a permanent light of the Lord, we will have permanent gladness, permanently free from oppression, and permanent peace, Jesus will finally rule over all creation without any more interference. Look at Revelation 24, or 22, verses 4 through 5. <clears throat> it says, And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And, they will, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need for a light of the lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them and they will reign forever and ever. They're reigning with who? With the Lord. The Lord's, he's ruling and reigning forever and ever. That's, it's done. There's no more interference. There's no more challenge. Because in Revelation 20, it talks about how Satan and the false prophet are now cast away into the lake of fire for all ever. There's no more opposition. Jesus will establish peace and he will rule over his new creation. And guess what? Just like the prophet Isaiah said that the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Look at what the uh, apostle John writes in Revelation 22, verse 6. After saying all these things will happen, what does he say? I hope this happens. I wish it happens. I dream that it will happen. No, look at what verse 6 says. And he said to me. These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the spirit of the prophet sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. He is saying that this will assuredly take place. All these things that the Apostle John has written down in the book of Re Revelation, specifically as for our message this morning, these things in chapter 22 and 21, he's saying these are faithful and true. These are most assuredly going to happen. These aren't like we hope it happens. We think it's going to happen. No, 
You can trust that they're going to happen. So what does that mean for each and every one of us? Well, it means, well, first, let me ask you this. Do you have this hope? Because some of you, some of you may be hearing it this morning and say, well, that sounds nice, but I don't really know if it's true. Do you, well, let me say this. If you don't have this hope, you can have this hope. And when I say hope, I, I really mean this. it's going to happen. It's not like, again, like a dream. How, do you, how does that happen? Well, first, you must repent of your sins that you've committed against God. You need to repent. That means turning from your sins, asking the Lord to forgive you of your sins and forsaking them because you agree with him that they're wrong. Secondly, you need to confess him as your Lord and Savior, giving your life to him, not only in word, but in deed by following after him and believing in him and putting your hope and trust in him and what he has done for you on the cross. If you don't have that hope, then I would encourage you, I exhort you to do to have that hope, to put your trust and your faith in him by repenting of your sins and giving your life to him. And for the rest of us that have this hope already, what does this mean to us? Well, look what we have waiting for us. One day, we will finally have all the oppression and evilness and sin gone forever. We will, ha- we will be in, in perfect peace with our God and our Lord and Savior. And I say this morning, because of that, we should praise him all the more. Rejoice that his kingdom has come. And his kingdom is coming in a more fuller sense. Praise God that you have this hope. Praise God that what he says is going to happen is going to happen. And you can count on it. Just as surely as Christmas is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. We just don't know when, but we know it is coming. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the blessed hope that we have of your second coming and the kingdom of God coming in its total consummation. As we experience the kingdom of God now, we look forward to experiencing it in its more fuller sense at your return. But until that day that you come, Lord God, may we hang on in hope and trust in who you are and what you've done. No matter what happens in our lives, may we continue to look forward to your second coming, your appearing. And Lord, I pray again for those this morning who have not yet experienced that hope by putting their trust in you. I pray that you would move in their hearts and their minds, that you would cause them to cry out to you, to ask for forgiveness, to confess you as Lord and Savior, to turn from their sins and follow you this morning so that they might truly know who you are and experience freedom from oppression eternal gladness, and true peace. I pray this in the name of your Son and our faithful Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's all stand. And again, before we worship, if that's something that you want to do, putting your hope and trust in the Lord, I would urge you to do that this morning. And if you'd like, we would even pray with you to do that. There will be a few people in the back there, at the back of the, the room, that would do that with you this morning. So see them during this time of worship. For the rest of us, again, let's... Let's worship the God who's assuredly 